Welcome to the Knowing Jesus Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bachman, a licensed professional counselor. On the show, we explore who the real Jesus is, with his love, with his power, and with his endless pursuit of humanity, with the hope of changing our lives. Good morning. On today's episode, we'll be reading John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord." I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and a raving man. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So that's the reading for today. Now to jump into the processing part. If you're like me, you've heard so many similar words and start getting confused. We're hearing sheep and pens and shepherds and and all kinds of similar words, and it might be easy to get mixed up. And so we're going to unpack the main message as well as the general heart of Jesus and again, his mission. Right off the bat, Jesus talks about if anyone does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, of which he is the gate, then they are a thief and a robber. Likely talking about, okay, uh, human beings are sheep, and if someone is trying to uh, access the sheep outside of Jesus, they are antichrist, they are anti-God, they are a robber and a thief, they are a false prophet. 
The only way through eternal life, uh, to eternal life, is through the gate, through Jesus. Uh, and the only way to be a true sheep is through that gate and through Jesus. Then we see a number of similar phrases. Um, I think I got them all correctly, and they aren't paraphrased, but if they are, forgive me. So the sheep, they know him, they know his voice, he calls his sheep by name, he leads them. You can see the intimate relationship and the knowing back and forth. The sheep are knowing Jesus. Jesus is knowing the sheep. The sheep put their trust in Jesus. Jesus cares for the sheep. He lays his life down for them. He is the good shepherd who is intrinsically motivated because he cares about the sheep. It's interesting to me how, okay, if we have a quick summary of sheep, they're some of the dumbest animals on the earth. Never fun that Jesus is like, y'all are sheep. And he says that in a loving way. This isn't condemning. This isn't uh, looking down on us. It's the sad uh, metaphorical reality of how we act. Uh, We're not the brightest spiritually um, people. It's interesting, though, that sheep often will follow one another off a cliff. They do all kinds of things that puts themselves in harm's way. Um, And yet here he's saying the sheep will not follow a stranger's voice. I don't know if that's true or not, or I don't know if that's specifically for this metaphor. So it's just interesting to be aware of that. But then he starts talking about false shepherds. You know, if he's the good shepherd, he doesn't use the phrase false shepherds, but he talks about thieves and robbers and hired hands. What does all that mean? I'm sure there are other interpretations and things to be aware of, but from what I'm experiencing and seeing here, these are referring to the Pharisees and false prophets and anyone who is not pointing to Jesus. If Jesus truly is the way to eternal life, the good shepherd, the only good God, the only way to be made perfect, not of our own work, but his gift, then everyone else, every other contrary message is a false false prophet, a thief, or a robber. And he's talking to the Pharisees on one part and many other people. I think it's important to note in contrast, maybe I'm I'm stretching this too far, but if we take the idea of false prophets or people who are not in it for the sheep, but they're in it for their own personal gain. You know, you could think of prosperity gospel people, people who seem to focus more on money than actually just serving people. If there were persecution, if there's difficulty, if the sheep are struggling, those are the first people that are going to hightail it out of there. Right? They don't have actual interest in the sheep or the good work. They want fame, they want power, they want money, they want special privileges, whatever it is. If we look back to prophets from the Old Testament, they were hated people often, they were outcasts, people didn't like them. Israel often put to death true prophets. And so it's no surprise that although Jesus is greater than a prophet, If the prophets are pointing to Jesus and human beings have a difficult time accepting Jesus in the sense of he is Lord, we don't have more power or authority than him, we submit to him, these same people then wanted to kill Jesus. And yet he is the good shepherd. I love that. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. 
I have other sheep that are not of this pen. He's talking about Gentiles. Again, another offensive thing that his hearers would listen to. They thought they were the only people, that they were superior. And so here is a, a loving kind of punch to the, the pride gut, if you will. Oh, gosh, I thought we were the only people. We were the best. And so they don't want to hear that either. But Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. When danger is coming, he doesn't run away like the hired hand. In fact, he puts himself in danger's way for us. And this is another good reminder that even though the work on the cross is finished, he's still suffering with us. As we are in difficult seasons, as we shed tears, as we hurt physically, emotionally, mentally, mental health, whatever it is, Jesus is weeping with us. One of my favorite scriptures that we're going to get to someday is in Revelation, where it talks about God has a bottle, a bottle where he is collecting our tears. He is so, oh my gosh, he is so present and aware of our pain. He's keeping track of it. And I'm not going to lie to you. I've often been cynical and been like, well, great. So you've got a bottle. Why aren't you here right now? And that's one of the difficult parts that we don't always get to see his presence, feel his presence, and have that experience of that kind of love here. Some of it we will have to wait to the other side. But I pray for myself, I pray for you, that you get to have moments where you sense he's got that bottle. He's keeping track. He knows. He's hurting too. And his other, my favorite passages, when he sees his friends suffering and crying, he will cry with them. God is not absent. He's not far away. He is invested in this story. And he is so personal that unlike every other God that mankind has created, this God who created us instead of us creating him, he lets himself be affected. He lets himself Feel our pain too. He's felt our physical pain as he walked on this earth, as he suffered the cross. He's felt our emotional pain then and now and until the day comes where there is no more pain. I'm also drawn to the very last part of, or the part of the reading for today at least, that uh, the Jews or the Jewish leaders who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed. Again, there's that favorite Uh, phrase of theirs. Let's just discredit him, call him crazy. And then they add this one too, and a raving madman. Why listen to him, right? It's like, man, uh, but as much as I want to put down the Pharisees, and and hopefully it's coming across graciously, even though it's difficult to read sometimes, I myself am that same way. I might find something, you know, I can think of countless times where friends have shared truth about God or challenged me and my resistance is that's nuts, that's crazy, that's not who God is. Um, It's easy to just dismiss things instead of being humble and open to a more full, more clear picture of who God is. So those are the ones that challenged Jesus and the ones, but others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Honestly, I haven't been aware of too many passages where some Pharisees are curious. I used to think that they were all just a lost cause, and only Nicodemus uh, was one of the Pharisees believing. But clearly, there are other leaders, there are other Pharisees who are curious and stirred. My heart is curious that 
I wonder how much to this day there are uh, Pharisees leading churches and directing congregations, and there might be some in those churches who are encountering Jesus and saying, wait a second, this isn't, what we're saying to these people, what we're doing isn't like the Jesus of the Bible, and what courage that takes to stand out and push back against just religion instead of the living Christ. Now, we can't go to one extreme and say that, like, just throw out organized religion completely. I don't think that's productive and healthy, but it's also good to challenge and say, where have we just developed like-minded think tanks instead of being open to the convicting, challenging, humbling words and actions and spirit of Jesus? This reminds me of a story. Uh, I was 16. My parents were on vacation. Um, and for whatever reason, I was, I was home alone, which was fine. I was a very competent individual at the time. And I chose to go to church on my own. Uh, I went to my parents' church. Um, didn't have any understanding of what would be my church versus their church. I didn't think about finding my own. I was young. But I went to church one day. I was wearing athletic shorts and a t-shirt. And I remember at the front of the door, someone basically said, uh, they were being very cynical and sarcastic and, and kind of mocking me for um, disrespecting God by, by showing up to church like it was a basketball gym. And I'm actually kind of amazed that I actually continued to go in the, the door, maybe out of shock and not even understanding what was said. But that is a sad, sad state of, of a greeter at the door to say something so critical and mocking a young person choosing to go to church on their own. And I'm not sharing this story because I'm, I'm bitter. I'm not even, the point is, it's amazing what still happens to this day. You know, we, we could think that the Pharisees are long gone and, you know, our churches are immune to them. And surely, our, I mean, again, this is a church that prides itself in theology. And that doesn't mean that everyone in the church was sick or that the, the pastors and everyone was terrible. But it's just sad, right? It's like, where do we get off, like, telling people, judging people, like, that is so the opposite of Jesus, and it's good to be reminded, how are we inviting people into church? How are we talking about people that are coming into church, that are trying it? Are we putting unnecessary barriers? I remember, you know, being a much older person at this point, but still not, I was, I forget if it was in Nashville or where, but I was with a friend, we were trying, we were trying out churches and we went to a place and we even like kind of dressed up and <laughs> yeah, apparently we didn't dress up enough. And it's like, man, why is that? a barrier for people. I remember we got like looks and people were like, why are you, you know, what are you doing here? It was almost like they didn't want new people to join the church. And again, it's like, man, can you, can you call yourself something else? If you're not going to, if you're not going to be open to strangers, random people, Christian or non-Christian coming in, people that look different than you, can, can you just rebrand yourself as something not church? Because um, church should be a place where Albeit, it doesn't have to be incredibly and everything about it seeker-friendly, but it should be very mindful uh, of others. And where do we pretend that if you look a certain way or dress a certain way or groom yourself a certain way or have a certain profession um, or, or anything that you're somehow better? 
It's terrible. It speaks to deep and massive insecurity. And I have to put myself, sadly, in that boat too. Because even though these are destructive tendencies, I compare as well. I would argue, I mean, we all compare. Oh, am I making more money than that person? Do I look better than that person? Am I more attractive than that person? Um, they're breaking some social rule. They're not doing something right. They're distracting. They're annoying. They're inconvenient. They're different. Gosh, man, like, again, I find it fascinating that as I read the, this gospel, in one sense, I'm so frustrated with the Pharisees, and yet I continue to find myself convicted that I too am part of the problem and that I too need Jesus to make me humble and I too fall so short. And it's my deep conviction, as, as sucky as it is, that, that real revival and real change and people seeing Jesus for who he is is because Christians take ownership, we take ownership of our shortcomings and our failures and we're more humble and we're not defensive and we're open to how we've missed the mark because we don't have to defend ourselves, we don't have to make excuses, we know that we, our identity is in Christ and so we're no longer in the arena battling for our significance And so we can own a great deal. In closing, I think it would be good to end in prayer. Uh, So Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would move in all of our hearts. God, I pray that you would help us be so full of your love and our identity in you that we would be able to boldly own our own mistakes instead of comparing ourselves to other people or being caught up in pride and thinking that we are somehow better. I pray that you would help us, the church, be such a representation of uh, honesty and integrity and a safe place where people can be human and broken and know that only you have the power to judge us. And if we are found in Jesus, there is no more judgment. I pray that you would help us reflect that daily. I pray all of these things in Jesus' wonderful, sweet name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Catch new episodes every Wednesday, and I hope you have a great day. Thanks.